Coming up on today's show, unruly provinces. Well, you know what? It's exactly how things are supposed to work. And we'll hear from Ophelia Cara and her mother, Mariana Bela, who are really worried about some of the changes to stabilized treatment for opiate addiction in our province. And we'll talk about TV. It's changed, right? You remember appointment viewing? That's gone now. So if you've been following along, and I know you have been, if you're listening to this show, Danielle Smith campaigned and won on a platform made up in large part of what has been called the Sovereignty Act, a declaration of provincial autonomy, right? Well, Saskatchewan Premier, as you know, put out a policy paper uh, saying a lot of the same things, talking about provincial rights. Of course, they're not alone. This has uh, gone on before. There are others pretty continuous in Quebec, but um, the latest flight, maybe maybe Danielle Smith has pushed it into a new area with some of the things that were in the Sovereignty Act and might not be anymore. We're not sure what it's going to look like, but uh, it's raised the question of how Confederation functions. Our national unity has been called into question in some cases. Provincial rights, all the rest of it. So uh, to have a conversation about that, we're going to chat with James Forbes, who is a postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Saskatchewan. James, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me, Shay. So, as I said, you know, Danielle Smith, probably the most vocal critic recently of provincial-federal relations, but, but as I said, she's not alone, right? I mean, there's a long history of this, and she's not the only one currently either. Absolutely. And uh, one thing that Canadians often forget is, in many ways, our system was designed to accommodate regional differences. Since this is such a vast country with, um, you know, a vast geography, there's a lot of different you know, differences across different regions of the country. And so one of the ways that the Fathers of Confederation addressed this was to have strong provincial powers built into our Constitution. And that's sort of the way that works. So let's go into the history of this and how it is sort of built in uh, to the way that this country operates. Um, the, The country literally was created with an eye to this very issue, right? This was a primary consideration by the founders. Even before Confederation, this was an issue. That's right. And, you know, one sort of episode in Canadian history that often gets forgotten is just those couple of decades before Confederation, uh, there was um, an entity called the Province of Canada. This was a union of uh, Upper Canada, which is now Ontario, and Lower Canada, which is now Quebec, and they became the United Province of Canada. And this was from 1841 to 1867. And this was sort of a forced marriage. And it failed for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons that it failed is because it failed to accommodate these differences across those two regions. Um, They had one shared legislature, which made it a fairly centralized union, which meant that even though they could make laws that affected only one region or the other, they still had to get all of their legislation passed through the same legislature, which led to all sorts of disagreements. Um, It was hard to find consensus on a lot of the key issues, such as education, healthcare, and for that reason, because of these experiences during this Union of the Cannabis from 1841 to 1867, uh, those issues like healthcare and, um, and education were assigned to the provinces. When the time, uh, you know, by the time the founders, uh, the fathers of confederation were designing confederation, they realized they needed a separation of levels of power so that they could have some of these more divisive issues handled at a more local level. Right. And in that way, 
they could have, you know, more agreement on the issues that they could agree on. So like you say, that happened, you know, around 1840 to 1867. So when we get to 1867 and Confederation takes place, that consideration carries over. That's that's a primary consideration in sort of how are we going to bring this Confederation to life and, and what's it going to look like? That balance, that tricky, tricky balance was part of the conversation way back when, right? Exactly. So there were a couple of major conferences that, you know, people from all over the British North American colonies, they all come together. They're having this discussion of, you know, what is this new country going to look like? And um, most people coming to those conferences were interested in preserving their own local interests. Um, This is something that has changed in the way that historians have understood confederation. Um, In in days gone by, there was a more nationalist narrative saying that confederation was a nation-building project. Um, And they really emphasized, you know, one side of the story, which came from people like John and MacDonald and his supporters, who did want a more centralized union. But there were a lot of other representatives at those confederation conferences who said, you know, we're not just here to give power to Ottawa. We're here to make sure that, yes, we can be part of this union. We can have the advantages of working together on areas that we can agree on. But we also want to make sure that our local interests are preserved. And that's why provincial powers were so important to getting this union right. And people like George Brown, were, uh, who, who was the liberal leader in Ontario at the time, uh, you know, they were the champions of, of provincial rights within Confederation. And in fact, there's a great quote um, that, uh, that George Brown, you know, gave in an 1865 speech. He said, the questions that used to excite the most hostile feelings among us have been taken away from the general legislature, federal, and placed under the control of the local bodies, meaning provincial. So for him, this was, this was key, was to make sure that in order to preserve national unity, we have to make sure that we devolve a lot of the divisive issues to the provinces to make sure that they can deal with things the way that suits their citizens most. And the U.S. calls their constitution a living, breathing document. And it, I think there's some parallels here in terms of this push and pull and this debate and this argument over who gets what and where that line is drawn, that changes over time. But again, that's that's sort of the way it's designed. This is part of the process, right? There are negotiations, there are talks, and, and things are, are, are come to an, we come to an agreement through a process. It's not set in stone. Absolutely. And, and of course, there have been so many court challenges over the years, even in the 19th century. There were court challenges that um, you know, made sure that, that certain jurisdictions weren't, you know, they weren't stepping on each other's toes. And it's, it is quite a process. But we can still learn from their experiences yeah. in the 19th century and say, you know, what mistakes were they learning from? And how can we make sure that we, um, you know, build upon those lessons for today? So what we're seeing right now with uh, the Sovereignty Act in Alberta, and you're in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe with the policy paper that he released, Francois Legault with exerting all kinds of different... Um, is it normal? Are we outside of the, the guardrails that we've always functioned in? Or are we just fine? This is how the process is supposed to work, and we'll, we'll see where we get to at the end, but there's no need to get too carried away with it? I think this is, this is fairly par for the course. Um, you know, people often, maybe for partisan reasons, you know, try to act like the sky is falling. And yeah, there, there are ways that it can go too far, of course. So we'll be, we'll be watching closely to see what, what the text of the legislation is with things like the Alberta Sovereignty Act to see if it does respect those jurisdictional boundaries and if it does respect that balance of federal and provincial powers that it has been key to, um, to maintaining unity in our country. Um, but, you know, I would encourage people to understand, you know, what were some of these principles 
that we've had since the 19th century that have made this country work so, so far. And one of those principles is respecting regional differences. Um, so, yeah, we will watch it closely, of course. Uh, you know, scholars across the country and, of course, citizens are going to keep their close eye on a lot of legislation coming down. And certainly the courts are going to have something to say about it. Uh, but I do think, you know, as long as it respects, um, you know, some of that delicate balance, I think there is room for that. There is some room for provinces to say, you know, we do things a little bit differently from how they want us to do it in Ottawa. And to some extent, you know, that's how our system is supposed to work. Yeah. So we'll work with the process and see where we end up. Uh, great conversation, James. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shay. Yeah, you bet. That's James Forbes, who is a postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Saskatchewan. So the province recently announced some changes to the way they deal with some people dealing with opioid addiction in our province. Not all, just some. And actually, if you look at it, it's a, it's a rather small group. It's, uh, it's pretty small. Uh, it's a group of Albertans with an addiction to opioids that... Uh, are about to see the program that they rely on. They've been living every day for a long time change, quite quite drastically in some cases. The way it works is these patients are prescribed extremely potent opiates, okay? Uh, you're talking hydromorphone, you're talking fentanyl, the big guns, um, which they go and pick up from pharmacies on, on a very, very strict schedule, closely supervised and monitored. Uh, but that's going away. That's not how it's going to work anymore. Now the province is saying we're not going to allow doctors to prescribe these meds for this purpose anymore. And we've heard from some doctors say, well, wait a minute, why not? But no, no, doctors aren't going to be doing that anymore. Um, they're taking it out of the hands of pharmacists to dispense these medications for this purpose. Nope, that's not going to work anymore. From now on, it will all have to be done, prescribed, dispensed, dosed in an AHS facility. And there's 11 of them around the province. Okay. So that's how it's going to work. Now, the program continues, just the way that it's administered and the way that uh, the people involved in the program access it has changed drastically. So um, these patients will have to attend an AHS facility each and every day for each and every dose, sometimes several times a day. Um, the ability to pick up enough medica medication to last you for a whole day, or in some cases, I imagine it gets pushed longer, a couple of days, three days, a week, something like that. I'm not sure. We'll find out. Um, that's gone. Now you must go get every single dose. They say they want to make sure that uh, the medication isn't being diverted. It isn't being sold. It isn't being traded, things like that. Um, it's, it's a big change. And as we find out, you'll see in some cases, it's just, it might drive people right off the program. So joining us to talk about it, we have Ophelia Kara, who is a harm reduction advocate and someone who's in stabilized treatment for addiction to opioids. And Mariana Bela, who is Ophelia's mom. Ladies, thank you both so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Marianne, I'll get to you in a second. I want to start with Ophelia, though. You're in this program. Now, we're told it's only for the most extreme cases where other treatment options have just simply not worked. So tell us about your personal experience and how you ended up in this particular program. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I do not want this program to be like a first line of treatment. I think it should be kept as an absolute last resort. But even as Engler said, the majority of cases can be stabilized with classic treatments, but the majority is not an all-encompassing number. There are some cases that suboxone, methadone, subcalate, things like that just don't work. 
Yeah. And that's um, what it, so for I mean, me, go ahead. I'm just, so yeah, you've tried, uh, these are for people who have tried, as you say, uh, the OAT programs, taking the methadone, yes. taking the Suboxone, people who've gone through residential treatment, all the rest of this stuff, and it hasn't worked. Is that your experience too? Yeah, I um, I started using fentanyl during the pandemic, um, and I really, really, really tried to get sober with things like Suboxone. Um, I actually spent quite a few months off of Suboxone, off of fentanyl, off of all opiates, but it just didn't work. Suboxone itself makes me very, very, very sick. Um, actually, treatments like Suboxone and methadone, they are actually very, very potent opiates, more potent than something like hydromorphone, for example. But the way that they work is they are partial agonists. So they fill the receptors in your brain, but they don't actually you know, really do anything more than that. They can kind of work for pain relief, but they're partial agonists. That's important to know. So I also tried being completely sober, but all the issues that I had going into addiction, before addiction, all came back. I was severely mentally ill before going into addiction, very, very depressed, very, very angry, very anxious. I could not sleep more than an hour per night. I had debilitating and painful migraines, various other pains. I did not have a high quality of life even before going on to fentanyl. Um, this isn't due to trauma or anything. Like my mom really did her best mm -hmm. to give me the best childhood that she possibly could, but my brain just doesn't release chemicals the way it's supposed to. That's, That's a it. physiological and thing I've, for, for many, yeah. many people. I'm glad you brought that exactly. up. Exactly. And um, I, I've tried all of the classic treatments. None of it worked. I tried being sober for a few months. It was absolutely awful. And it was even worse because, like, for the first 19 years of my life, I did not know what it felt like to be happy. I did not know what it felt like to enjoy my life. I did not know what it felt like to want to live or care about my own safety or be close with my family, any of that. But it was even worse when I went off of opiates because opiates, to some extent, they help with that. And especially now, like fentanyl was very, very chaotic, very, very destructive, and I do not want to go back onto that. I hope I never, ever have fentanyl in my body ever again for as long as I live. Okay. However, so the the, tell me about the program. That, how does the program work for you? Well, the way it works is I am prescribed a set amount of hydromorphone. I pick it up daily at the pharmacy. And it allows me to live a higher quality of life off of fentanyl, off of street drugs. Um, it, it really, it just keeps me safe and keeps me stable until I get to a point where I am ready to go off of it. I, I really hope that one day I will be completely sober, but I'm just not there yet. I go to the pharmacy every single day. I do not like, I don't pick up a week at a time or anything okay. like that. So how many doses are you given? I know some people under this program do get carries and they can go away for a day or two. You, how many doses are you given when you show up at the pharmacy? Um, I am given enough to last for 24 hours. Okay. When I first started on this program, I was taking six doses per day. Um, for a lot of people with addiction, they will take a dose every hour, every two hours. 
something like that. And throughout my time in this program, I have actually stretched out my doses. So I'm taking three doses per day now. Okay. Who's prescribing it and who's dispensing it prior to the change? Um, Currently, my doctor is prescribing it to me, who I work with, and I go into the clinic whenever I need to do a urine test that proves that I'm not taking anything else, and my pharmacist in my neighborhood dispenses it for me. Okay. So, and, and it works quite well for you. Now, what are you concerned about with these changes? Because you're not going to be going to the doctor anymore, and you're not going to be going to the pharmacist, right? That's the change that we're exactly. talking about. Exactly. Yeah, with these changes, um, I would need to spend 12 hours every single day on public transit. That's that's essentially what it is. It would make my prescription completely inaccessible to me because while they are not outright ending a prescription like this, they're making it unfeasible. Spending 12 hours a day on transit, that can't be done. It's just not realistic. For instance, I'm paying off my debt right now. I'm almost done. And once I'm finished, I want to go back to school. But with these new changes, I can't do that. I wouldn't be able to do anything else. You'd be riding a bus all day. Um, I'm going to ask you. Every day. And I mean, I don't want to drive after taking opiates, for instance. I can't drive. But even if I could, driving after taking a shot, that sounds really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to get you two to just hold on for a second. I have to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about how, you know, this this program is changing and what it means for the both of you. We'll do that uh, right after a short break. Absolutely. Continuing our conversation now with Ophelia Kara, who is a harm reduction advocate and uh, someone who's in stabilized treatment for addiction, and uh, her mom, Mariana Bela. And Mariana, I just want to ask you, because I think the important part of this program is, you know, we talk about it sort of a last resort for people that are severely addicted, uh, but it changes lives, right? So just tell me what, what you've seen, how it's affected Ophelia, and how what you've seen it mean to her in her life. Oh, hang on. I got to put, I'm going to take you off hold in order to do that. Sorry. Go ahead, Mariana. I'm here. I'm here. So I just, first of all, I just want to tell you that um, I unconditionally love my child and she has my full support on any journey that her life takes her. And also, I am very, very grateful for that doctor who had faith and trust in her to help her had her quit the toxic street drugs and and had faith in her to be able to sort out this difficult situation. So I'm forever grateful for that doctor. Um, the past, so ever since 2020, March, I was so scared. It was so difficult to watch her uh, playing Russian roulette with a syringe of fentanyl, wondering which one will kill her, wondering when should I call the ambulance, should I, or can I just nolox on her by myself? And it was very, very scary. And uh, ever since she is in this program and under the care of this physician, that went away. She is safe, she is stable, she can start focusing on rebuilding her life and and it's just it's just much smoother and calmer. We have a routine. She worked out her own schedule for um, how she takes her medication. We call it medication because well, it, is it is medication. medication. Yeah. It is medication. So she has her own routine. She uh, keeps herself safe. 
relative. She calls. Uh, there is this noise. She will tell about it, but but she is virtually supervised taking her her meds. Uh, we became much closer to each other. We we spend lots of time together. Um, the arguments, the fights are gone. Uh, I I always thought that she was an angry teenager, but but that was more than than just sure, that. Yeah. But all that kind of smoothed out, and we just support each other and. Um, I really, really, I, you know what, Shay, I don't like that she is doing this, but at least she's alive, and as long as she's alive, I have hope. Exactly. If she is forced back to the street drugs, which I hope will never happen, but if she is forced to go back to street drugs, and if she dies, the hope dies with her. Um, Ophelia, the, the the province says they're doing this because they don't want your medication getting sold on the street or traded on the street. These programs, what you're doing, the way you're operating prior to the change to AHS, that's not an easy thing to do. You are strictly supervised and monitored, are you not? Yeah, and that's another thing. Like The clinic isn't even open for some of the doses that I need to take. And with how much I've pushed myself to get to three doses per day, I can't just skip a dose. I can't. You'd be sick. But... Additionally, yeah, I, I am very, very strictly supervised and monitored, and I'm willing to compromise here. I am willing to compromise with the government to prove that I'm not to bring my medication. I'm willing to go in twice a week to do a drug test, for instance, to prove that the only thing in my system is hydromorphone. Because if I do any fentanyl, it would not have time to leave my system if I do two drug tests per week. I am willing to do that. I am willing to video chat with a nurse while I prepare my doses while I take it, like, I am willing to compromise. It's just I need to keep access to this medication. And with this new legislation, I would be losing access to it. What happens? But I'm willing to compromise with them about the diversion thing. That, I am willing to. That's what I'm wondering, Ophelia, and we're almost out of time here, so I want to know if this, well, it is, it, this change is happening. What does it mean for you? I mean, like you say, the program, it, it, you can't work it. You, you just can't, right? I mean, so what does this mean? Yeah. Well, I'm really hoping that I can get an exemption to this new legislation because there is so much evidence, both objective and subjective, that I am not diverting it, that this really, really helps me. I'm not in contact even with anyone who would even want to buy it. Like my best friend, even if I told him, hey, do you want to buy some of my drugs? He'd say, what is wrong with you? Do you have a fever, a brain tumor? Do you need to go to the hospital? What is wrong with you? Because mm. I'm not in contact with anyone who would even want it. But even if I did divert it, I would get so, so, so sick. Jay, I just want to tell one more thing that I am writing a letter. I'm writing a letter to Jason Copping and Mike Alice and uh, uh, trying to ask for an exemption for my daughter. So I'm going to mail it out and you on can Monday. confirm, too, that, like, you know, if I go into withdrawal or something, I still wait until the exact time for my scheduled doses, that I'm not diverting it, that I am the one who is taking this, right, Mom? That's correct, yes. But if I were to lose access to my medication, I'm worried that all of my progress would be undone, that I would go back onto street fentanyl or that I would need to get my medication like some other less reliable way that my relationship with my mom would suffer, my relationship with myself would suffer, that I would start engaging in these risky behaviors again. 
things like that, that I wouldn't be able to go back to school, that I would accumulate more debt that I'm almost finished paying off. Like, I really, really hope that one day I can get to her, but I'm not there yet. And the change that I've seen in myself, even, with having this prescription has been incredible, and I just want to keep that stability and that safety. I am willing to compromise with the government here, but I need to keep access to it. Ophelia, Mariana, unfortunately, I am out of time, but I can't thank you enough, uh, both of you, for joining us today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving voice to this issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll do this again. Thank you both. That's Mariana Baylaw and Ophelia Cara uh, talking about this situation. That's stability. That's the key, right? I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while now, ever since I read a piece by uh, our next guest in Globe and Mail talking about TV, which is one of my favorite things on earth. But boy, it's changed. Just think about it. If you're if you're my age or older, even probably a little bit younger, um, you remember how it used to be, right? Appointment television. We sat down to watch a show because that's when the show was on. You know, if you wanted to see the show, you had to be there sitting in front of the TV to watch it. You might catch a rerun years later if you were lucky, but if you missed it, you missed it. Nowadays, no, not anymore, right? It's all about on-demand, binge-watching, streaming, all this stuff. Plus, there's just so much of it. It's not the same. It's better in some ways, but in a lot of ways, I think we're missing out. So we're going to chat now with Randy Boyagoda, who is a novelist and a professor of English at the University of Toronto. His latest novel, Dante's Indiana, has yet to become a television series, but we're holding out hope. Randy, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Very happy to be here. I love TV, and I get the sense by reading your article that you do too, but man, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? It really has, Shay. I mean, I think you really, your your introduction there made a series of observations that resonated very much with with what I had on my mind when I wrote that essay for the Globe and Mail about the, I think, unintended consequences of the age of great television, which is, you know, what we're supposedly in. I think it's more like the age of exhausting television. (laughs) Um, There's a couple of different things there. When you say exhausting, is that because there's just so much? I mean, there's just so much TV now? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody tells you about a new show, and then you just kind of groan, right? Um, uh, Somebody mentioned, I forget what show it was. Uh, they're already on to the third season, and I thought, I have to watch you know, 48 <laughs> episodes of this thing because it's so amazing. But then you do the passive-aggressive thing, and you say, oh, no, no, but have you seen Succession? How could you have not seen Succession? And then you make them, you shame them for what they haven't watched instead. So that, um, like, in this piece, my, my main observation is that it used to be, hey, did you see that episode of Seinfeld last right. night? Oh, what do you think's happening in the X-Files on Sunday? Right now, no one says, did you see? No one uses that phrase anymore. Now the phrase is, have you seen the bear? Have you seen Rami? Have you seen interview with the vampire? Right. It's and almost always the answer is nope, nope, nope. But have you seen this instead? And so, what, you know, that's this was not a kind of a major think piece or anything for the Globe and Mail. But what I was really lamenting was that it used to be the case that, you know, you and I might not know much about each other, but we probably both think Kramer is funny. Oh, we yeah. both, there's, a, there's a certain level of kind of easy conversation that you can have with people that are not members of your family in public 
And we've lost that now. You know, it, it doesn't exist the same way anymore. You need to go online and find your particular social media community who's just as obsessed with the new Lord of the Rings show as, as you are. But there's nothing in between anymore. And in a time where religion, politics, mask wearing, whatever these things are that tend to kind of become fraud issues when you talk about them with strangers, we, we don't have that other thing we used to be able to talk about, which is one or two TV shows that more or less most people are watching. You're, you're so right. At the like, same time. I remember watching the Cheers finale in a bar. It was an event. People came to watch yeah, the exactly. final episode of Cheers. And I remember going to school on a Friday morning and everybody had to sit down and dissect the Seinfeld episode from the, from the night before. Yeah. We, 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 it, there was a community around television, Randy. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And again, but it doesn't replace other forms of community, right? It's not a greater community than, sure. <laughs> than family or church or something, but it's something, right? There's something kind of enjoyable about, you know, making a, uh, make, that's what she said, right? Your ability to just say random things, let's say from the office or a different TV show yeah. and other people pick it up and they know what you're talking about. It creates a kind of a middle space where no matter, again, no matter what your Europeans about everything else going on in the world, you kind of know, oh yeah, Michael Scott's pretty funny. Yeah, I can, I can connect with you on that front. And we've just lost it. Now we talk about streaming, what platform do you use? And oh, I haven't seen that show. I haven't seen that show. I haven't seen that show. I'm not sure if we're better off or not, right? Because you know what? We, it's a lot more convenient for sure. We understand that. But even beyond that, TV is not what TV was back when you and I are talking about. It's, I mean, I mm -hmm. read a book recently called The Golden Age of Television, you know, Sopranos and Breaking Bad and these stories, sure. because it's an elevated art form now, right? I mean, it's, it's not yeah, just TV. So. Yeah, so where, where, I, where I, you know, note that with a bit of a lament is as a working novelist, um, and as somebody who teaches novels and, and writes about them, etc. Back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe even in the 80s, there were certain novelists whose work everybody at a certain level would, would, would feel like they're supposed to read to be part of some larger, important conversation. And you would kind of say, you could signal as much, oh, you're reading the new, uh, the new John Updike novel, the new Saul Bellow novel, what, you know, the new Margaret Atwood novel, there would be whatever it would be to kind of signal something. And now it's, I watch season five of The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> and it's undeniable, as you were saying, that at the level of quality, sophistication, the seriousness of the acting, the budgets put in for production values, we are in unprecedented territory. I mean, this new, um, I think, frankly, mediocre Lord of the Rings series. What's it called again? Lord of the Rings. I haven't even watched that one yet. See? There you go. Rings of Power. A billion-dollar budget, and they couldn't even come up with a title that didn't repeat words in it, right? <laughs> but, you know, like they spent, uh, the estimate is close, you know, three-quarters of a billion dollars to create one season of television. And, and the interesting thing there is they're proud of it, right? It's a kind of a business statement on Amazon's part. This is how committed we are to, yeah. quote-unquote, making great television. The interesting thing is this. 20 years ago, that time you were talking about that book, The Golden Age of Television, so just around the same time as Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, there was also the David Simon show, The Wire. That's right. You ever see that? Oh, absolutely, right. yes. So, so I, I missed it. I totally missed it back in the day. And I watched one season of it over the summer. It is amazing. Incredible. As, as drama, but the quality of the camera, the quality of the scene setting is, is kind of embarrassing compared to your average streaming show on Netflix today. 
And it doesn't matter because the storytelling and the acting is so good, right? But then, and so in that case, you know, no one else is talking about The Wire right now. So that's kind of freeing. So I can watch all, whatever it is, six or seven seasons on my own, and I don't feel like I have to worry about whether or not anyone else is, right? Um, but in the meantime, with quote-unquote new shows, it's hard. I'll say one other thing. You might have seen this. In August, uh, one of the television critics for the New York Times had this really um, kind of funny essay about fall television. So I, I suspect many of our listeners are what I'm talking about. There would have been, for years, the, the fall meant back to school. It meant, you know, kind of the, the lead up to Christmas, the back to kind of life uh, after vacation. But also there was the quote-unquote fall TV season. All the new shows debuting, right? Yes. All the pilots, all the returning shows. And he's basically saying that's gone now. There's no sense of season anymore to, to TV shows, right? Netflix will drop Stranger Things mid-August of who knows when, and boom, that's it. There's no, there's no kind of sense of rhythm to it. But fall TV used to be a thing, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh- Another thing that I think we share is the groan and and the frustration when people yeah. suggest things. Why is that, Randy? I, I have this weird response. Like if somebody suggests something to me, it knocks it down several notches and makes me not yeah, want to yeah, watch right. it. Exactly, <laughs> because um, because almost always it, it's almost always like these conversations are scripted because it kind of goes like this, right? Have you seen X? No. Oh, how could you not have seen it? You need to see it. I can't believe you haven't seen it. Yeah. And all of that works against you. By the end of that whole song, you, you just think, well, I don't, now I definitely don't want to watch this because it's such a burden. Yeah. Now place I have on you, right? I, I have really good friends who have never seen Stranger Things. And I have spent probably five years harassing them to watch it. And they will never watch it now because I've, my friend said to me, he said, you kind of ruined it for us because you put so much pressure on us to watch it. It can't live up to the pressure. We're never watching it now. The other thing, like you remember when Sopranos ended and it was that horrible finale and that's all anybody yeah. talked about for a week. Now, sure. if you walked into the office and said, did you say everybody's, oh, I haven't seen it yet. I have, don't tell me. Don't tell yeah, me. Yeah, I haven't absolutely. seen it yet. How many times have you heard that? Exactly. Because you're, because you're out of... You're out of sync. Yes. <laughs> right? You're out of sync with everybody else. Awesome insights, and so Randy. You, and I think we've all yeah. lived it. We've all experienced it. And uh, just longing for simpler times, maybe, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe that is part of it. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Randy. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. You have a good day. You too. That is Randy okay. Boyagoda, who is a novelist and a professor of English at the University of Toronto. His latest novel, Dante's Indiana, has yet to become a television series, and I, he's so right. And when you think about it, how different television used to be. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.